Welcome. You're listening to The Aligned Self, conversations in creating a conscious and abundant life. This is Daniel DeNovi. I'll be your guide and host. Let's see just where we can take this. Hello, friend, and welcome back to the conversation. In today's episode, we're going to explore the dark night of the soul. I'm going to talk about specifically what it is, what it's not. One of our podcast listeners inside our Facebook group, the Alliance Self Podcast Listeners Facebook group, asked me to speak on the dark night of the soul and the higher self. Now, if this is your first time tuning into the Alliance Self Podcast, Thank you for showing up. I'm sure you're here for a reason. That's usually the way it works out. People just don't happen here. And so I appreciate your listening. So if it is your first time listening in, you might be asking, who am I to talk about such thing as the dark night of the soul? Well, I've been on my spiritual path, the spiritual journey, ever since I was 13 years old, possibly before that, but most consciously since I've been 13. I'm now a little over 60. And so it's been a while. It's been about five decades where I've been on the spiritual path. And I have gone through the dark night of the soul a couple of times. Now, I've gone through some other experiences, some other transitions. And I'll talk about those transitions also in this episode. We'll also talk about the ego, the death of the ego, the higher self. What does it mean to have a relationship with your higher self? This is going to be a very important episode. Originally, when she asked me the question, I thought, wow, that's one of my favorite topics to talk about. But as I began to ruminate over the whole idea of talking about the dark night of the soul and the higher self, I began getting downloads from my guides telling me that this is actually a very important episode, a very important topic to talk about, especially at this time in history. My astrologer friends tell me that on January 20th, Pluto moved into a different arena, different ruling area of all the signs. And so everybody is going to experience a certain amount of disheaval or a shift in their perspective. Now, there's also a lot of other things going on energetically and have been since, so probably 2020. And things are just taking on an accelerating acceleration. So things are going to be happening faster and faster. And many more people are going to be experiencing shifts that they don't understand. So we're going to be talking about the dark night of the soul. We're going to be also talking about the void, which a lot of people mistake for the dark night of the soul because it feels confusing. And we'll also be talking about the death of the ego. We'll talk a little bit about what the ego is and how it plays into all this. Well, first, let's address the dark night of the soul. It sounds ominous. And in some ways, when you're going through it, it feels like you're dying. And not to be overly dramatic, it is characterized by an inner crisis, a crisis of faith, a crisis of self-identity. And if you haven't yet gone through this, chances are you will. So buckle in and hang on to your head because we're going for a ride. So something for you to understand first and foremost is that the dark night of the soul is not a bad thing, even though it feels really uncomfortable. It's not a bad thing. It's actually a period of disillusionment, which again, is not a bad thing. I seek to be disillusioned about life. 
Now let's think of the flip side. If I'm being disillusioned, then I am releasing the illusion that I have about who I am, the illusion of life, the illusion of how reality works or how I think it works. So the the dark night of the soul is going to be different for each person by a matter of degree. For some people, it's going to be quite cathartic. For other people, it will be a major bump in the road. But what brings on the dark night of the soul is a realization that whatever perception, whatever idea that you had about yourself, about reality, about the cosmos is wrong. It like smacks you in the face and says, wake up. And you're in this understanding that everything that you thought you understood is wrong. It doesn't work. At least it doesn't work the way you thought it did. Now, you might be asking, how long does a dark night of the soul last? The, the title, the, the way it's phrased, implies that it's just one night. Well, it can be one night, can be a couple nights, a couple days, can be a week, several months, a year, a couple years. Sometimes it can last several years. And I'll talk about some reasons on why it might take longer than you feel comfortable with and how to navigate through it faster or with less discomfort. The good news about the dark night of the soul is no matter how uncomfortable it is while you're going through it, there is a light on the other side. It is a lot more beautiful once you get through it. You have a whole new understanding about who you are and how reality works and just the world in general. Now, before we go too much further, let's talk about who you are. Who are you really? You are a spiritual being immersed in the human experience. And as we're in the human experience, we adopt a certain idea about who we are and our relationship to reality, our relationship to others, our relationship to how things work. Now, one would think that if we're a spiritual being immersed in the human experience, when we come here in the human experience, we would have access to all the wisdom of the divine. And in many ways we do, but since we come here, essentially a blank slate, we learn things all over again. We develop an idea about who we are, how to navigate in the world. It's all a school for the most part because we have to relearn how to become a spiritual being. You see, when we incarnate, we forget our divinity and it's through the process of reclaiming that divinity, of reestablishing our connection to source, that is the adventure of being human. As we begin to formulate an idea of our self-identity, who are we? It is a haphazard construction. We don't have a fully formed self-concept, self-identity at any given moment. It kind of comes upon us. We adopt it at certain stages throughout our life. We add a belief here and a, an idea here, a perception or an experience here that we interpret it this way about us, which may or may not be accurate. And so, and so there's not necessarily a grand design when we're generating or creating our self-concept. Many of the ideas are adopted along the way. And for better or worse, some are true or seem to be true, and then many are false. But there is this pull from the Spirit always pulling us along to reconnect with the divine. 
But that is kind of like the carrot that's held out before us way down the road. Our self-concept that we develop, since it is somewhat iffy and based on uh, some different ideas about who we are, it's not necessarily grounded in a manner that is long-lasting. And this is the fragility of the ego. You see, many times we think that we are our characteristics. We are our behavior. That is us. And that is the illusion that we are a personality. But the you that you've come to know yourself to be is not who you really are. It's more accurately expressed as a collection, and I say this with the greatest amount of love and affection for you, but essentially you, the, the you that you know yourself to be, is essentially a collection of knee-jerk, habitually learned responses that you've adopted along the way from childhood to adulthood in order to survive childhood alive or with the least amount of pain. And this is why I call it a haphazard construction. And because we're immersed in a herd of other animals and we bump up against them and we have interact with them, they have feedback, that we tend to judge our worthiness based on the good esteem that other people have for us. How agreeable are they with us? Do they like us? That kind of implies that we're worth having around. But this points to the fragility of the ego. See, again, the ego is the mask, it's the persona, it's the, what we present to other people. And sometimes other people don't like it, but we take that personally. We walk away with a damaged ego. And so that shifts our behavior and we start behaving in ways from egoic needs in order to satisfy or validate who we are, that we are lovable, that we are important according to so-and-so or them over there or some other standard. And not, it doesn't come from an internal sense of who we are. At the end of the podcast, I always say, follow your bliss. Live your life from inner signals. Be inner directed. You see, I want you to have this autonomous sense of self that is independent of the good esteem of other people. But if you think about how you interact with somebody that you first meet, or maybe you first start dating, or you think back to when you first started dating your significant other, if you've been together for a long time, chances are you did not lay all your cards out or don't lay all your cards out on the table right up front. Because there's this idea in the back of your mind, if I did that, they might not like me. They might reject me. They, they might not like that side of me. And so we tend to put our best foot forward. We want to make a good impression. We might even hide aspects about ourselves that we feel are true and that may be true or evidenced by past behavior, but we won't talk about that because if we pray that out front, they'll run the other way. And we're constantly in fear that other people, if they really knew who we were, they wouldn't like us. See, this is the fragility of the ego. But we, we cannot sustain this. So it typically takes about three months in a relationship, three to six months until your real self starts eking out. Most people cannot keep up the facade. Now, there's a few. There's a few of you that have been doing it for years, possibly even decades. 
Now, if you have the feeling that in your circle of friends, in your relationship, you say to yourself, I just can't be myself. Or there's this feeling like I just want to run away. I want to run away to somewhere new where nobody knows me. Chances are you've been putting up a false front. The persona is Greek for the mask that we show others. And we all do it to some extent in order to be accepted by other people. But we also have an idea about who we are to ourselves. I've gone on to talk about the ego because the dark night of the soul typically represents an egoic death or the death of the ego, the idea of who we think we are. Now, I've heard Jim Carrey, the actor-comedian Jim Carrey, talk in different interviews. I don't know him personally, but he seems to have gone through the dark night of the soul. He went through a period of depression that he talked about, and typically the dark night of the soul contains some depressive thoughts or a, a period of depression where it feels like nothing works. You see, he was confronted with the, the knowing, like he was highly successful. You know, he was this actor, Jim Carrey, but then he began asking, who is Jim Carrey? Because is it the comedian? Is it the persona? Is it who shows up on the job? Because he, what he felt was a lot of people didn't want him. They wanted his persona. And so in this depressive stage, this dark night of the soul, this self-examination, he realized that his idea of who he was wasn't working anymore. And he asked himself, without acting, without comedy, who am I? And today you'll hear him say things that seem crazy to a lot of people. He'll say things like, well, Jim Carrey isn't really here. Jim Carrey doesn't really exist. You see, from the perception of self-concept, self-identity, who you think you are is conceptual in nature. It isn't real. But we have an assortment, a collection of characteristics and ideas that in our mind represent who we are. My first dark night of the soul occurred when I was 23. I had taken a job in Columbus, Ohio. I represented a photography program that produced uh, books for churches. The customer that we worked with were churches and the families in the church. My job was to go out and talk to different churches, find the pastor, find the preacher, and then arrange a conversation, a presentation with the board of the church. A lot of people think that the pastor or the minister runs the church. No, they're an employee of the church. And so I would spend all my time searching for the pastors. You know, this was before internet. So I'd basically drive around the countryside, drive around Columbus looking for church steeples. And then I would try and track down the pastor or the minister for that facility. And then I would arrange a presentation with the board, which was typically on a Thursday night or a Monday night or a Tuesday night, and which would be at another time. And so I was working all day, finding these connections to set up evening appointments. And I would sell them on the program where we would come in and photograph all the families in the church and then put all those pictures in a booklet that they could hand out to other people. It could be like a community phone book or a community member guide. Now, where we made our money is that we would also come in and sell family portraits to the families. The churches range in size from just a half a dozen people to 3,000 families. 
16,000 members, which in the end is a lot of pictures, potentially a big payday. But the majority of the churches are right around 100 families. Now, I understand that you might be asking, Daniel, what does this have to do with Dark Knight of the Soul? Well, I'm getting to it. But I had this idea about what I was doing. And in my mind, I was this was part of my ministry, so to speak. It was my way of doing outreach for God, Christ, that whole genre, that whole idea. At least that's what I told myself my mission was all about in the position I was in. Now, I also wanted some money out of this deal because you don't do something for nothing. And so there was going to be an exchange, and I was told that the position could easily make fifty to 60000 Now, this is many, many years ago, and that seemed like a lot of money to me at the time, and it was a good living. And I was working like a dog in order to make that happen, but I was not seeing the checks yet. I was paid on salary to start out with. They moved me from Michigan to Ohio, Columbus, Ohio. And they paid me a salary to start with because I needed to actually lay a foundation in order to get to a point where we were coming back and selling pictures where we would make the money to the families. The details of this don't really matter, only for context about what I went through. Well, I saw a company publication on the top producers for the company. These were the leaders in the company. So I started looking at their output and I realized these are the leaders in the company and they are making a fraction of what I was promised I could make. When I looked at their numbers and compared it with my numbers that I was on par to make the little bit of scratch that they were making. And then in my brain, I did a quick calculation. If I was working like a dog already, how much harder would I have to work? How much more would I have to do in order to make what they promised I could make? which my salary was based on commission. So it was based on my output, based on my sales, based on my effort. So here was my moment of disillusionment. There was almost no way I could realistically make what they promised I could make on the front end. When I took the position, when they sold me the job, when they moved me to another city, I was all by myself for three months. My best friend was an alcoholic next door named Mike. I lived in an apartment. He had taken the apartment next to me, and we would talk late at night. Now, at first, I didn't realize he was an alcoholic, but that it became evident. The only other set of friends I had was about five apartments down was a young couple named Blaze and Nancy. Blaze was a restaurant manager and a really good cook, so occasionally... I would go down for barbecue, but they were newly married, so they didn't necessarily want me hanging out all the time. And so it was more of an acquaintance, uh, someone that I would hang out with, you know, infrequently. But what I remember about that time most was just the the sense of isolation and the day-to-day grime of working all day long to make evening appointments. With the realization about the potential income, I was disillusioned. The next day, I didn't get out of bed. I didn't felt like I had the flu, but I didn't have the flu. I just had no motivation, no desire to go out in the world. I was depressed. It was the closest I've ever come to to calling it depression. I just felt tired. I felt disillusioned. I felt confused. Who am I? What am I doing here? I'm all by myself. What am I going to do? 
I don't want to do this. And I began thinking about why I didn't want to do it. And I became more clear in my mind about the disparity in the income and my expectation. See, this is where we're disillusioned. We have an expectation of how life is going to show up and it shows up, oh, not so much. And so we have to reconfigure. We have a crisis of identity, a crisis, even cosmology, because I thought this was my mission from God, you know, to sell these photos or this photography program as part of the outreach. No, it wasn't. Uh, but I didn't know what was there to take its place. I didn't know who I was in relationship to what was next. And so what did I do? I slept. I didn't want to get out of bed. I basically got up out of bed to use the bathroom. And I had a few things. I would go to the kitchen and have a little orange juice and eat some soda crackers. I wasn't really hungry. And then I would go back to bed. After about the third or fourth day, my sales manager was calling me on my phone. I could hear his voice on the answering machine. This was before cell phones. And there was an, I had an answering machine and he would just cuss me out. At first he was like, where are you? What's going on? Then it was like, where are you, you son of a bitch? You know, this is a Christian. And he was not very nice to me. At least not, I never actually talked to him. Uh, I just called and said, I quit. But uh, <laughs> at some point, but uh, he was not very happy with me. But I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't, I could not get out of bed. I felt lost. I felt depressed. I didn't know what to do. I just knew that I didn't want to keep doing what I was doing. I didn't want to keep living how I was living. And this is the problem with being in a low vibratory state. And this was definitely a low vibrational state. You see, when you feel like all is lost, when you don't feel like things are working out, like you don't have it figured out, it's like, oh my God, what was I thinking? I was such a fool. That was what I was thinking. In that vibrational state, you start attracting other thoughts of a similar nature. And those thoughts beget other thoughts and it's secular. It's a vicious cycle. It's difficult to get out of. And I can actually remember praying to the Almighty, God, help me. I have no idea what's next. I have no idea what I'm going to do. And you know the message I got? Turn on the TV. Turn on the TV. Now, the television I had at the time was a little 13-inch screen. Color TV. It was color. 13 inches. Not very big. By today's standards, smaller than your computer screen, taller, smaller than my laptop. But here was the TV, and it just so happened, this is 1984. What was going on at this time was the Olympics. And I started listening to the stories of the Olympic athletes. I started seeing the wins, Carl Lewis, and I saw Mary Lou Decker, accidentally tripped and she fell to failure. She, her Olympic career was over in that moment. So I saw success and failure and she picked herself back up. She was an interview afterwards. I forget exactly what she said, but it was inspiring. The other person I saw was Greg Luganis, perfection in motion. I was so inspired by Greg Luganis as a diver, as an athlete, I began thinking differently about myself, about the possibility, what lie ahead. Then the next message I got from the divine was to listen to music. 
I had about a dozen albums, but my favorite at the time was Amy Grant, her Christian album. A lot of people don't know. She started out as a Christian performer, Christian artist, but her album, Straight Ahead, had a song on it, It's Not a Song, which is decidedly not Christian, but it's about the creative act, that it's not a song until it moves you. It's not till it makes you cry. It's, it's not a song. And I began thinking about that at life, that there was so much more to get out of life. So you see, the divine was assisting me to get out of this slump, to dig myself out of this hole inch by inch. Then I had the realization, this is where the ego died. I kept thinking like I was going to figure it out, that I could do it without God, that I was, that I didn't need divine assistance. And here I was with the realization, not getting out of bed for almost two weeks, that I did not obviously have it figured out. I didn't know how to get out of it. And so what I did, I surrendered. I surrendered to God. I surrendered to Christ, whatever that meant. I didn't know what it meant. I said, I just can't do it on my own. I sat down to the typewriter and wrote a letter to God. I don't have the letter anymore. I don't think I do. But I basically said, I thought I could do it on my own. I can't. I don't have the faintest idea what to do or how to do it. And so I'm going to give my life over to service. I'll do, go wherever you want me to. That scared the heck out of me before that. What happened after that moment is magic. Synchronicity started taking hold. Opportunity started to present itself. I ended up getting a job with Wendy's International. I was serving hamburgers. But it was a step up, which, which is interesting. When I applied, I applied just to be interviewed. Now, let me qualify this. A lot of people apply to be interviewed. But my only job was to be an interviewee. You see, Wendy's International, the corporate company, was training a bunch of different managers. And so I was to be interviewed all day long for the next four days. And I would sit and interview after interview after interview after interview. They were all training these different managers. And at the end of that interview process, me thinking that I was only going to get paid for the three days, they ended up offering me a management job. They said every person that interviewed me thought I would be a stellar manager. Well, that opportunity led into other opportunities, and it just, I won't go into it now. The dark night of the soul for me at that moment in time lasted for two weeks. But I admit it was literally one of the most difficult times of my life. Everything seemed hard. Everything seemed like an effort. It seemed impossible. It literally, my life from that point forward seemed impossible in that moment. But the moment I surrendered, it just, everything became magical. Everything unfolded perfectly. 
and has, by and large, since then. That dark night of the soul seems like it happened rather randomly. And sometimes it may seem that way. Again, it is your spirit, your higher self, that is continually guiding you towards a relationship with the divine. If I'm honest, it didn't just happen then. Many years before that, I made a declaration to myself and to God that I wanted to be all I could be, that at any given moment, I have no idea what that is. I wanted to realize my potential. And I can honestly say, I would not be here now talking to you through the microphone, be here in my life as a, as a coach, thousands of people, thousands of students, without that period, without that moment in time. It was a dissolving of the ego. I can't do this on my own. I'm surrendering to all that is. Now, one would think that one surrendering is enough, that, you know, my ego is now destroyed, that I'm going to operate from a higher level, a more spiritual level from that point forward. Well, not so much. I had another spiritual awakening when I was 28. I've talked about that. It was a kundalini awakening. And through that, the idea of who I was as a person was an illusion. I left my body four times. And I talk about it in uh, in depth in another episode. I'm not necessarily going to revisit here. We could just make this, this episode extremely long. But I came to a realization that who I was as a human being was merely a play of consciousness. I left my body four times. The fourth time, I was soaring through the cosmos. There were It seemed like there were all stars around me. But later I realized they were spirits, they were consciousness, they were aspects of consciousness that were appearing bright as stars, like fireflies throughout the universe. It was totally beautiful. I was totally in bliss. But having that experience leaving my body, I had a distinct palpable knowing that I am not my body. And if I'm not my body, who am I? I am thought. I am consciousness. I am energy. That experience, though, resulted in me losing my job. My marriage dissolved. I changed locations. Every physical structure in my life fell away. Nothing was sacred. Nothing remained. Yet I was perfectly fine with it. I was okay with it. And in a moment, I'll go into why that was, why it was much easier transition, even though it was a much longer period of uh, upheaval in my life, of confusion in my life. Why was it easier going through that than it was that two weeks? I'll talk about that in, in my thinking around why it was easier. The next dark night of the soul, the next, I guess, transition period for me was when I left Federal Express. I was with FedEx for 18 years. And it was probably 15 years after this, uh, my uh, Kundalini experience, when I actually left FedEx to start my coaching practice full time. I've been doing it part time before that. But suddenly, leaving that Fortune 100 company behind was no longer standing behind me. You know, I could no longer count on it. I could no longer point to that was the product, that was the company. No, it was me. It was me suddenly. I was the product. What I could deliver was the product. And suddenly I had all these doubts. Who am I? 
Who am I without my management position? Who am I, you know, without FedEx buying me? Who am I in the world? What kind of difference am I going to make? In addition to that, I realized that the relationship I was in at the time wasn't going to work. And I left that. Was no longer going to participate in that dynamic. And I was alone with my thoughts. That lasted about 10 months. Now, I wasn't confined to bed, but I wasn't doing very much. Not very, (laughs) wasn't very productive in the world. I talked about another episode where I was reviewing my relationships, my relationship to women, and I watched all six seasons of Sex in the City. And I got an education of what women's expectations were. I can remember crying at different episodes and just with the realization like, oh, I'm big, you know, or I'm, I'm emotionally unavailable in a lot of different ways. I, I got an opportunity to look at me on who I was in the world. And it wasn't pretty. It wasn't, a, it wasn't who I thought it was. And so it was another layer of ego death. I also remember that time of being a period of intense confusion. And this is where it was kind of more, rather than dark night of the soul, it was a period of being in the void. Now, the void is similar to the dark night of the soul, where there's a sense of confusion, a not knowing. There's a sense of not belonging anywhere either. You don't know where you fit in the cosmos, And so the void is kind of that nowhere place between here and there. It's a way station, so to speak. If you're a farmer, if you have an orientation to farm work, it's like being in the winter. In the winter, you're not growing crops. So what do you do? You paint the tractor. You paint the farm implements. You fix things when they're not being in use. You like just maintenance. And so... There's a certain period, and and trees too, trees during the wintertime, they're dormant, they're not growing. And so during this period was a period of introspection and reflection, really deciding who I wanted to be in relationship, who did I want to be for the world? And in that thinking, I realized that I get to say what I deliver to clients. I get to say. And so I bring the value based on my commitment. And I committed to you. I committed to your fulfillment, your your progress, your spiritual development. I committed my resources to assist you. I, I think I said on the front end of this, all this began as a very selfish endeavor. I wanted to have the best life possible for me. I wanted to realize my potential. And then I realized that in being of service or being in service to you and every other person on the planet, not that I serve every person on the planet, but I'm available for anyone that wants to go to the next level. If I can assist you, I'm there. But a lot of people are finding themselves in the void at this period of time. It doesn't feel like where they currently are is where they're supposed to be. They don't know where they're supposed to be there where they're going to end up. They just know that this isn't really everything that's cracked up to be. There's also the realization that the the government and other institutions are not what they thought they were, not, not what we've been told over time, that history might not be the way we're told. The monetary system is on shaky ground. So there's a lot of potential change in the air. 
not only astrologically, not but environmentally, socially, culturally, we are going through a lot of shifts. Not to forget spirituality. We are on a spiritual evolutionary path. Our conscious awareness is increasing. Consciousness as a whole, consciousness of the planet. There are old paradigms, old egoic structures that are going to be released. Things are going to shift. Things aren't the way we thought they were. And we may go through some dark times. We may go through the void, some periods of confusion or some down and out. Come to Jesus. Who the hell am I? What is the world about? There's essentially two areas that you're going to experience in Dark Night of the Soul. One is a crisis in faith, a crisis in what is your cosmology? How does the world work? What is your relationship to God? Does God support you? Does the universe support you? What does that mean? What does it look like? And then a crisis of identity. Who are you on the planet? Who are you in this life? What do you want out of this life? Who are you in relationship? If you take your persona away, if you didn't know who you were, who would you be? If you took away your job, took away all the things that validate who you are in the world, do you have any idea? Who are you? Now, we can go back that you are a spiritual being immersed in the human experience, and that's where I came back to the realization or the knowing of my spiritual essence a lot of people have an understanding. If you don't yet have a knowing, you're going to go through some experiences that are going to bring that into more clarity, into crystal focus. It's inevitable. And so how do you navigate these periods, these transitionary periods, when you go through them? Well, what made it easier for me the second time around is that I had lower levels of attachment to what was in my life. I could let things go. I was not attached to my marriage at the time. I was not attached to the furniture, was not attached to my job, was not attached to where I was living. I was on a journey. I was on an adventure. I didn't know where it was going to go. And so I was in the adventure of letting things unfold, of surrendering to all that is, knowing that the universe had my back. At that point, I'd realized that the universe did have my back. And then there was the knowing, the transpersonal experience of leaving my body and knowing that I was oh so much more, that I was more than my body, more than the physicality of my life, more than the structures, the, the material aspects of my life. They were just things that I played with while I was here on planet Earth. Many of these attributes that I use to get through this, I've talked about repeatedly in these podcast episodes. And so I'll repeat some of them now. First and foremost, I already said it, it is the acceptance of what is. Don't cry over spilt milk. It is what it is. Dust yourself off. Pour yourself another glass. When things break, they break. Here, here's a story. I was driving down to my parents' house, down to my family. I lived about an hour away from the rest of my family in Michigan. I'm driving down M52, and a woman runs a stop sign. I catch her out of the corner of my eye. I realize she's going to broadside me, hit me right in the door. I maneuver towards the corner of the intersection, and she, it's a glancing blow. She still totals my car. It was over for my Grand Prix. I love that car. Supercharged. It was beautiful. I loved driving it, but it was gone. 
and it was just gone. I had no idea what I was going to do. Had no idea how I was going to get to Texas. Wasn't even sure how I was going to get to my family's house. The sheriff offered to take me to the corner market, the corner gas station. I was able to call my sister. She came up and got me and then drove me back. Went to my parents and my mom said, you know, we were wondering what we were going to do with this car. We're going to get a new car. And so we'll just give you this car. It was a Chevrolet Cavalier. Definite step down from my Grand Prix, but give me a free car. I'll take it. Turns out that the insurance settlement for my Grand Prix was next to nothing. So it was a good thing. It was a beautiful thing, a synchronistic thing that my mom and my father decided just to give me their old car. This brings up the next attribute in navigating these uh, dark night of the souls. That is to focus on those things that you love and appreciate. I appreciated the fact that I survived the accident, that I was able to walk away from the accident. Didn't matter that my car was totaled. It's just, you know, it happened. And then I got another car just like that. My parents didn't ask for anything for that car. In fact, I was doing them a favor by taking it off their hands. I was so thankful for their generosity. I called my chiropractor and asked him if he could take a look at me because I'd just been in an accident and he adjusted me for free. In fact, he treated me three times over the weekend, all for free. The other mindset that will assist you in getting through this, in fact, everything, and it is the last thing I say on every podcast, be engaged in the epic adventure. Your spiritual life as a human being is an epic adventure. Things are not going to go the way you think they will, but they will always work out to your greater benefit. See, every adversity carries with it the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. Many of you probably remember the story of the Japanese farmer who had an able-bodied son and a horse. And one day the horse runs away. All his neighbors come to him and say, oh, you lost your horse? How horrible, how terrible, how unfortunate for you. And the only thing that the farmer can say is, well, maybe. Well, about five days later, the horse comes back and with it are two more wild ponies. Suddenly, he has not just one horse, but three horses. All his neighbors considered him to be among the richest in the land now. They all come over to him saying, how fortunate, how amazing, how phenomenal for you. You now have three horses. You're the richest man in the region. And the farmer says, well, maybe. A couple days later, his able-bodied son is breaking in the new ponies and is thrown and breaks his arm. He can't work in the fields. All his friends and neighbors come over and say, how horrible for you. What are you going to do? Your son can't work now. You're, how are you going to plow and harvest the field? What are you going to do? How horrible for you. How terrible. And the farmer says, well, maybe. Then later in the month, the state militia comes and scattering up all the able-bodied young men to fight in the war. And they spare his son. They don't take him because he has a broken arm. All his friends and neighbors say, how phenomenal for you. How fortunate for you. The farmer says, well, maybe. You see, nothing inherently has meaning. Nothing is neither good nor bad, but it is the context by or the criteria by which we judge it by that makes it good or bad. And so when you're getting through the going through, 
When things seem tough, remember it is an epic adventure. You're here to enjoy yourself, to be in this struggle of it, to be in the confusion of it, knowing, and this is when I talked about being in the inquiry in the past. I've talked about being in the inquiry. This is another attitude. When you're in it, don't try and figure it out. Just know that you're in it and the universe will conspire on your behalf. In the attitude of the inquiry, you're just investigating different ideas, different possibilities. You're maintaining or entertaining, that's the word, entertaining different thoughts. You're not attempting to fix it. You're not attempting to find the answer. You're just being with it. And I I guess that's an attribute that I did not yet talk about, is just be present in the experience. Be present in it. And in that getting through the going through, there is a beauty, there is a light on the other side. Now, I understand some people, when they go through this, they think about ending it all, pulling the plug, other euphemisms for suicide. I don't do it. It always gets better. There's always a light on the other side of the tunnel, even though it seems futile, even though it seems too much in that moment, it's never, ever too much. You always have more reserves. You always have something more to give. Just keep on keeping on. And you might be losing everything. You might see, you might not be able to see how it works from here or where you will end up. It seems pointless. It seems fruitless. The road before you seems all broken. There is no, there's, there's no satisfaction in tomorrow doesn't seem like there's any satisfaction in tomorrow. But believe me, things get better. Things are beautiful when you can surrender to the process of life. Surrender to God the infinite. Lean on your higher self. Now, on the front end of this, I said I was going to talk about your relationship with your higher self. I'm going to do that in the next episode. But until then, I'm going to throw you a bone and say there is a part of you that has one foot in the divine, one foot that is connected to God, God is all that is, one part of you that knows God's thoughts. You think that there's a separation between you and your higher self, between you and your soul, the oversoul, your inner being, whatever you want to call it. There is an aspect of you that is tied intimately with the divine. It's not apart from you. It's not separate from you. It is you. That aspect of you loves you unconditionally, wants the best for you, is there for you. Day in, day out, 24-7, 365, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, it is always there for you, always looking out for you, always guiding you. You cannot get away from it. It is only in our perceptual position where it feels like we're separate. Well, hopefully in the next episode, we'll remedy that idea. So until next time, this is your friend and host, Daniel DeNovi, urging you to follow your bliss. Live your life from inner signals. Be inner directed as you engage in the epic adventure. (laughs) 